Listener discretion advised by the sound contains salty language. So if you don't like that, turn it down now. No, now, like right now. Okay. Let's start this fucking show. <laughs> hey, Sarah. What's up? There's don't. No one in your contacts matching Sarah. Okay, Siri. Not you. Sorry. <laughs> hey, Sarah. What's up? Sorry. I don't see. <laughs> hey, Sarah. What's up? Oh, yeah, it's got to be something else. Well, that's just annoying. That is, that I'm is, sorry. <laughs> I'm going to write an angry letter. From the Coast Salish land of Seattle, we're by The Sound, your community-invested podcast. I'm Sarah Mays, speaking this week with Aisha Hauser and Raven Juarez. On this episode, we ask whether your vote matters. Then we're going to explain what the hell was going on in Charlie Kaufman's new movie, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. This is By The Sound. Hey, Aisha, how are you doing? Um, how am I doing? So I, I think I said this already, pandemic fine. I'm still there. I'm okay. Um, very behind on every single thing that I have to do. So I'm just going with it. I don't even, I'm not even upset about it anymore. I'm like, I do as much as I can. I write, then half of it doesn't make sense. So I rewrite. So I'm really excited actually today because today we have Raven Juarez Friedman. So welcome. Welcome, welcome. We're very excited. How are you, Raven? Oh, I'm great. I'm really happy to be here. This is so cool. I'm really honored that um, you guys reached out. Um, I think this is going to be a really fun highlight to the months moving forward, something to look forward to, a great way to connect with the community. And I'm looking forward to learning a lot and like soaking up some of your guys' good wisdom. So I'm just really happy to be here. And for listeners who want to get to know Raven a bit more, our new co-host, she was on episode six of the show on January 10th. And Aisha and I had such a great time interviewing her. We thought that it would be a lot of fun to hang out with her some more. So uh, welcome to the show, Raven. Hey. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Um, I like that phrase, pandemic fine. Doing pandemic fine. Um, Obviously, a lot's changed since we talked last. Um, My school has gone pretty much virtual. I'm doing uh, Zoom call meetings with three and four-year-olds weekly, which is a whole new skill set. I never anticipated to need. We've been putting together some really fun art kits for uh, our community and our students that kids can pick up and do at their home with their parents or their caregivers. And that's been a new skill set as well. And yeah, it seems like there's always more more to do and not enough time, but somehow there's too much time. (laughs) Zoom (laughs) calls with three and four-year-olds. Can you unpack that a bit? I'm, uh, that that just doesn't (laughs) compute. (laughs) Um, we've kind of gotten it down. We started in the spring and then took a break over summer and now we're back. I'll do like once a week, a full group zoom for about 40 minutes. And then I have one-on-one individual time with each student. And I feel like that's probably the most productive. So the kids get to see the other little faces. Right. The, the group zooms are mostly so they can feel connected and feel part of the community and kind of have a chance just to, what they really want to do is just talk to the computer and be heard and be seen and remember that they have friends and they have a teacher. So that's kind of the whole point of the group ones. It's not really so much me being like, learn this, like absorb what I'm telling you. It's so much more just for that social emotional aspect. 
it's a little bit sad, but it's, it's something. So we're trying our best just to do it lovingly from a distance through the computer, through these kits, through connections and just crossing our fingers and hoping we get a semblance of normalcy in the foreseeable future. Remember back in March, we were like, oh, we'll be fine in September. Oh yeah. Yeah. Remember? We thought we would be fine in two weeks. We were like, see you guys in two weeks. Bye kids. Like I didn't even bother art off the wall or anything until just last week. I just was like, I guess it's time to really admit that they're not coming back. How are you, Sarah? Um, I'm good. Uh, I am. I'm good. It was an unusually large milestone for me to vote on Friday. When I, I received my ballot, it, um, I opened my mailbox, there was my ballot, went straight inside, filled it out as fast as I can with, you know, had to investigate a few things, but it seems I, I got it from my mailbox to the drop box at my local library in about 58 minutes, um, <laughs> which I think is a personal record. But, you know, it's something I've spent four years envisioning and it it couldn't come soon enough. Um, I've never been this enthusiastic to uh, vote in a presidential election, and I was mighty enthusiastic four years ago. But it's sort of a relief. It's a bit of expected and unfinished business. But we'll talk about that more in the next segment. Talk about voting in general. Um, but that was the biggest event of my week. Was this simple administrative task. I remember enthusiasm. I remember that. Uh-huh. <laughs> and places. Remember going to places. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with voting after the break. Hey, Raven. Hey, Sarah. What's the best part of donating to Buy the Sound on Patreon? Uh, other than helping us to make more episodes of the podcast? Yeah. I like the daily local news updates. With so much local news to follow, it's great to see all the stories that matter in one place without all the fluff. And it's available for as little as five bucks a month. Our news updates are posted almost every day to our private Facebook group, which all supporters are invited to join once they donate to Buy the Sound through Patreon. Our donors will also see previews of upcoming episodes, and they'll have access to bonus content streaming through our Patreon page. Are there any other benefits to supporting Buy the Sound? Listeners who donate at the Alki level or above will receive invitations to our meetups, where they can meet by the sound co-hosts, guests, and supporters of the show. We'll be having more of these in the coming months via Zoom and eventually in spots all around Seattle. Are there any other benefits for our supporters? Yes. Listeners who support the show at the Discovery, Westlake, or Gasworks membership level will receive all the benefits we described, plus the opportunity to nominate and sponsor a guest of their choosing to be interviewed in a future episode of the show. It's one of the many ways that we're making By the Sound a community-invested podcast. That's so cool. Remind me where people go to donate. People can learn all about these benefits and more at www.patreon.com slash by the sound. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash by the sound. The headline of one article I saw this week just popped out for me. It was from The Daily at UW by Patrick Hurl. It was, does your vote matter? UW panel tackles the question. 
And um, it's, yeah, such a, a basic question. It's, um, you know, a lot of us out there, like, cheerleading the vote, trying to get out the vote, encouraging our friends to vote, excited, excited about voting. This article says that there was a Q&A of um, the political science faculty held this last week at UW, and one of the undergrads asked, does it matter to vote in non-competitive states? Um, by which they were thinking solid red or solid blue states. And yes, obviously, as, as you know, one of the professors responded uh, correctly, there is a lot more on the ballot than just the presidential race. You know, you could be uh, electing city council persons, uh, county councilmen. Uh, you're very importantly local county court judges, um, state court judges, all these, you have referendums and, and ballot measures, stuff that makes a big impact regardless of whether your state is definitely going to vote for Biden or definitely going to vote for Trump. But I, I wanted to step back and, and look at the, the bigger question. Do you feel like your vote matters? Asia. So here's the thing that with that, the answer to that question and First of all, if people suddenly said, oh, I live in a safe, put that in quotes, state, it's not going to be so if everyone has that attitude. So there's a few, there's so many layers because you have to vote to keep it, whatever the word safe means. So like if if you are, you know, I want Washington to basically stay blue when it's only because of the sliver of Western Washington that it is, because unbeknownst to me, everything east of Issaquah is not blue for the most part. Um, and there is something strange to me that we're going to vote our way out of fascism. I mean, I think there's something just, it isn't, there's a cognitive dissonance in that. And I still think we need to vote because all the ballot measures are like immediate, um, have an immediate impact. Uh, the city, the state, uh, ballot measures are really important. I was supporting our 90 vote. Yes. To have comprehensive sexuality education in the state of Washington. But so I think we need to not let go of the the premise of voting because what does and we we need what we need to do is work on making every single state have mail-in ballots period full stop people waiting in line for 12 hours as someone tweeted is a poll tax that is voter suppression so our votes will count when we don't have voter suppression so we need to dismantle and that's what stacy abrams did when she had the election stolen from her from the disney villain um kemp who <laughs> shut i mean george is <laughs> she called him that i saw her speak in seattle she called him she said i lost the election to a disney villain <laughs> but that's what we, we need to stop asking the question does our vote count but how do we get more votes to count and how do we combat voter suppression and it would seem empirically Washington is doing a pretty good job. Uh, another article I saw this week was from the Tacoma News Tribune. It headlined, Are You a Political Junkie? If you live in Washington State, you're not alone. And the real lead of this article was that of, of a overall survey done of WalletHub.com. I'm not sure what makes them the experts, but hey, at least they looked at it. Washington ranks second among 50 states in political engagement, and that is right behind Maine, is number one. And it, importantly, we are first place in voter accessibility. That's, you know, getting your ballot in the mail, 
being able to return it without postage, um, being able to return it if it's just postmarked by election day, not having to be received back at, at the election offices by election day, but postmarked. Um, yeah, low, we are a low barrier to voting state. You can vote in your underwear on your couch. Unless you are unhoused or highly transient or in need of special assistance, it is very easy to vote in this state, which is a frustrating thing to know when we have these local elections that no one turns out for. Uh, but anyway, Raven, do you feel like your vote matters? Um, I do. I feel like there's kind of a cynicism especially in my generation about that topic specifically. Um, I feel like we kind of generationally got used to feeling like powerless, but I've been really feeling optimistic and really encouraged and empowered by the people my age, by our community, by our, my friends, um, because there just is like this strong push, like there's this strong pull to act and to, you know, maybe one vote doesn't matter, but you and all your friends and all your family and all the people, you know, that matters. And that we kind of just, it's not really so much about like my, like does my personal vote, my one little tick box matter? Maybe not, but what does matter is moving forward as a wave or um, a force. Um, I was thinking about it this morning that I realized this was the first time I ever voted for a white man for president. And that was kind of like a strange realization because since I've only been able to vote, I voted for Obama twice. And then I voted for a woman. And this was my vote. And I was like, that's kind of weird. (laughs) I love that. I love everything about that. That one sign in my neighborhood is, uh, you know, the lawn signs. It's Kamala Harris for vice president. And then in the corner... It says Biden Paris. Yes. Yeah, that's kind of how I've been thinking about it for sure. <laughs> Raven is a millennial and uh, Asia is a Gen Xer. And I am very, um, well, technically an exennial, but uh, tend to understand <laughs> the Gen X folks a bit more. But uh, that's just because I'm a cranky old crone. But <laughs> uh, oh my. There, there is, you know, every what what Raven is describing of, you know, the the millennial sense of not being, um, of not mattering. Every single generation deals with that, goes through that phase, and there there's this chicken or the egg problem of, you know, are politicians not being responsive to or prioritizing or responding to young voters? because they don't vote or are young voters not voting because the politicians aren't speaking to them, et cetera. And then of course what happens is the young voters wise up and realize, Oh, right. These politicians are never going to pay attention to us unless we vote. And then they start voting and more and more of them wise up until they're old. And you know, the cycle repeats itself. And uh, I, d- I don't see how this cycle ever ends because young people always come into it just like they come into the workplace, like wondering, you know, why they don't get to call all the shots. You know, I felt that frustration when I was once a young person uh, and <laughs> I, I don't uh, think it's different now, though. 
I think what you're describing has been true up until probably the last maybe five or six years when I'm impressed with Gen Z and millennials right now. Honestly, I feel like there's been just so much rallying and so much emboldening. And I feel like the reason part of it is, is we're not really voting on things that just have to do with us and what maybe what our specific hopes and desires and idealistic viewpoints are. It's about human rights and it's about things that um, universally may not even touch us, but there's like this, um, you know, the Gen Z kids and young millennials and older millennials are growing up in a time or have grown up where our main focus isn't really so much about the individual, but it really is about society and like the things that we've grown up knowing is wrong, global issues, global warming, systematic racism, police, like these are all things that we've grown up seeing on the news. And so now that we have that power and people are saying your opinion matters, it's more like we want to vote because we want to see the world change right now and we're impatient. Exactly. That, that's, the, that's what I'm feeling in the air. It's like none of this is sustainable, really. We know that. I mean, I, I could not imagine in my teenage years that somebody like Greta Thunberg would be a thing. Like, you know, we had, I think, a, a kid who went to Russia, and that was the closest we had in the 80s. Somebody went and met Gorbachev because they wrote a letter. I mean, okay, but not the same thing. I mean, there's just a different, like, there's, I think, it, uh, um, less of a cognitive dissonance than was I, when I was a kid that without change, this is going to be terrible mm-hmm. for most people on the planet. So I think that's what's different. Among activists, I follow a lot of activists on social media. There is a tension, like, you know, one person's pretty clear, like, you all are fooling yourselves if you think voting is, I mean, you need to do it. But she said, that's where I got my voting my way out of fascism, like somebody tweeted or something. Like, yeah, that's a good point. We think we're going to, we're going to vote our way out of fascism. Okay. My thing is, let's put the tourniquet on. Like, let's get... Kamala in there. Stop the bleeding. I feel like if we get those votes in hard and fast and like that, it just makes it harder to dispute. It makes it harder to to undo it. It makes it harder to make an argument otherwise. So, I mean, that's pretty much the buzz of everyone I've talked to. All the lawyers are mobilized. The Democrats have lawyers. The Republicans have lawyers. There's papers ready. I don't even know what what they could possibly say before any of this but the, everything's mobilized to be in courts, which is why that demon Mitch McConnell, I hope he hears me. <laughs> oh, he listens. Uh, I don't know if he's uh, gone on Patreon yet, but. Um. He is not a dumb fuck. He's a smart fuck. He's an asshole, but he, that's why he stacked the court. So when this all goes through the courts, the idea is whatever it is that the Republicans remain in control by any means necessary. And then we're going to have justice handmaiden. So. <laughs> It isn't just that Biden has to win by 50% plus one. There's a sense that he has to win by a landslide. Like, we need an indisputable victory because of all this preemptive fuckery and and Trump's nonsensical uh, issues with with the ballots and um, all this conspiracy stuff. And they're just, yeah, laying the groundwork to contest anything that's close. So... Democrats need to flood this election. And that's one reason to think, yes, your vote does count in this election. We need all hands on deck because we are voting against fascism. Mm -hmm. The second thing I've often heard about reasons people feel like their votes don't count is that it's just a vote, that it's just this little thing. 
that it's just them, that they, they feel like they're up against these huge machinations of, of money and p- power and political parties and so forth. Voting is like a gateway drug to political engagement. Because you get on there, anyone who gets on our local King County ballot right now is going to be confronted with all kinds of issues that weren't on their mind. They're going to be looking at, you know, assistance to the elderly. They're going to be looking at public transportation, issues around how the county sheriff's office is run. Um, It engages us in the issues of the day. It informs us of who our local officials are. And I like to think of it as an educational opportunity and the very least we can do to look for change. And I think any activist, uh, any community organizer should see the power of getting people involved by voting as a start. That's why in college, uh, we, did, we had mail, mail-in voting in Oregon. Um, I tried to get as many friends registered, you know, so they could vote for Al Gore in 2000. And then, you know, because we had tons of ballot measures every election in Oregon, I'd have them over to my apartment and we'd get out a a bottle of Jack Daniels and we'd vote and we'd do shots. And uh, it was a drinking and voting party. And what would end up coming out of there is a dozen, half dozen friends who learned a whole lot about local politics. And a lot of those friends stuck around in Oregon and they became educated about the issues and the candidates by voting and drinking in Oregon. Was it a drinking game? Like, did you have rules? Like every time you vote for this, you have to take a shot or something? hilarious. If we did, it it would have uh, disintegrated pretty quickly, I'm sure. (laughs) But that's not a bad idea, whatever it takes. It's not, I think it's a both and. It's not, I don't think it's, it's that we shouldn't vote. I think there needs to be a broader perspective as to how the Republicans, who are not a neutral party, have, have realized that the, in time, if, They don't fucking annihilate everything. The demographics are against them, right? So what they're doing is it's not an accident that the handmaiden, Judge Handmaiden is 48. That's young, right? She could be looking another 40 years on the Supreme Court. They're stacking the the federal uh, benches with young conservative cuckoo birds. We need to dismantle the fuckery that has been um, the machinations of how judges have been placed. If we need to add a few more seats to the Supreme fucking court to, to drown out handmaiden and the, the like, let's do it. Like what, so, so it's a matter of being nuanced and holistic and complete in our thinking, because if we only rely on voting, we're fucking toast. Seriously. We're, cause we're just going to get thrown bones. Like these local measures are like, sure, you can have money for a bridge, but, but nationally, if we only rely on voting, as we can see, we're fucked. So we need both. We need to dismantle the machinations that are just really going to keep some pretty awful people in power for a very, very long time, regardless of the demographics, the demographic changes. So we need to do both. Well, our, our next episode after this one will be after election day. So hopefully uh, mm-hmm. that will create a great chance for us to talk about a lot of great potential changes that could be in the future. And hopefully we will not be in some um, clusterfuck of litigation and a hellscape, a hellscape of uncertainty. Hey Raven. Yes. Will you be our new co-host for by the sound? Uh, are you going to pay me? That seems fair. 
I, for one, don't think we should be asking women to do even more unpaid work. Um, But Sarah, how on earth are you going to pay me? That's what donors are for, Raven. Listeners who donate to the show on Patreon will make sure you get paid. The more donors we get, the more episodes we're able to make. Cool. Where can listeners go to donate? www.patreon.com slash by the sound. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash by the sound. Coming up soon, we're going to talk about I'm Thinking of Ending Things. That discussion will be lousy with spoilers. So instead of uh, scaring away any listeners now, let's uh, move to the normal end of this. Aisha, what are you grateful for this week? Um, I am grateful for Zoom. I know like I have a love-hate relationship with Zoom, but I never would have reconnected with my friends who I lived with in North Dakota if it wasn't for Zoom. Like I'm now seeing people. I wouldn't have gone to my friend's birthday party, 50th birthday party who lives in New Jersey, except for Zoom. <laughs> so I've been able to connect with people that I know with, and I travel a lot, never would have seen them, never would have happened. So I actually have a lot and FaceTime. I love because I get to, I haven't seen my daughter in a few months. I haven't seen my son. He's in, um, they're both in different states for young adults, but it's fun to see people on this magic, you know, sorcery that is <laughs> the internet. So, and I could see the two of you. So I'm actually grateful for Zoom and being able to talk to people literally all over the world. I'm, I'm having a great time with it actually. And it is a luxury every now and then just to pick up the phone and like fuck Zoom. But this week I am grateful for the medium that is Zoom. And our listeners won't know this, but... This summer, uh, you know, every week or two, Aisha and I would end up on the phone. <laughs> we, we were practically doing whole episodes, but, you know, either not recording or, you know, recording things that I was never able to get around to editing together. So we, we have a lot of phantom episodes out there. And, you know, I always felt so much better coming out of those, um, having oh, connected you, with a human adult. It's true true though. How about you, Sarah? I am grateful for voters, specifically Democratic voters, especially reliable voters who understand the stakes. It was one of the the most frustrating and disheartening experiences of my life in, in 2016 to see as Trans rights were being challenged in so many places with bathroom bills and other sorts of Republican fuckery. I would hear supportive words from people who said they valued trans rights. And, you know, I was heartened by those words. Those were a morale boost. But then to hear some of the people turn around and say they weren't going to vote because they had some problems with Hillary Clinton, which, okay, everyone has some problems with Hillary Clinton, or that they would be voting for Jill Stein. It it left me with the feeling that people weren't willing to do the very least to help trans rights, and that it was, all the talk was bullshit, because, you know, voting, I think we should think of as both the bare minimum and necessary. It's the place to start. At the very least, if you support trans rights, if you support civil rights, if you support voting rights, the environment, uh, human rights like health care, basic decency, 
Mm-hmm. Please vote, and please vote for Democrats. Um, the election is November 3rd. Raven, mm-hmm. what are you grateful for this week? Oh, man. Just think, I'm, I'm grateful how easy it was to vote here in my neighborhood. Uh, got my ballot, walked to the library, and dropped it off. And I know that's such a luxury that I don't take for granted at all. It's people waiting in lines, people going through all these things, people having to deal with being intimidated or threat, like anything like that. Uh, it's awful. And I think that people who are still coming out to vote, who are still hurt, like going through those hurdles to make sure their voice is heard are truly like real heroes. So I'm thankful for them. Um, I also feel thankful for voters who maybe are in a position kind of like me, where a lot of the things getting voted on may not have a direct effect on their life or their rights or their experience of America, but who still go through that effort to do it. Because that's really, that's when we really get out of that, like I, me mentality. And we start thinking about, you know, my neighbor, my friend, my relatives, my community, um, the children, the future. So I'm thankful for those voters. I'm also on a totally different level, thankful that it's October and it's spooky season. Um, I love it. I haven't, I'm not going anywhere. I have no plans, obviously, but I decorated my whole apartment real spooky. I've been watching spooky movies. I've been spending a little more time on eyeliner. I invested in some sweaters. I'm just really letting myself enjoy the simple pleasure of knowing it's October Somehow decorating my house helped me understand and like process how much time has passed. Cause I think I've kind of been feeling like it's maybe like March on repeat a little bit <laughs> in my soul and mind. So to kind of give my space a refresh and make it spooky and lean into the doom and gloom and kind of revel in it has been very therapeutic and fun. So I'm it's decorative to- gourd season, motherfuckers. Yes. Okay, we're entering into a spoiler-rich environment because we're going to be talking about I'm Thinking of Ending Things, written and directed by Charlie Kaufman, based on the novel I'm Thinking of Ending Things by, I think it's Ayn Reed. Charlie Kaufman was the writer of Being John Malkovich and... Then went on to write a couple of my favorite movies, Adaptation and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And then he wrote and directed one of my all-time favorites, Synecdoche, New York. And he's covering a lot of the same ground now in I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which came out recently on Netflix as a direct-to-streaming movie. I'm Thinking of Ending Things touches on, I think, a lot of very timely topics of mortality, of isolation, of loneliness, of wistfulness and regret, of looking back at a lifetime and what was and wasn't achieved in that lifetime. But before we go into a deeper read, Aisha, what did you think? Here's the thing, Sarah. I None of those movies... Spotless Mind, Malkovich, all of them. I don't, I, I don't, I can't get into those movies, but for you, I'm like, okay, I will watch this for the sake of the podcast. Couldn't do it. First of all, it's too much thinking for me. <laughs> this is not a genre I enjoy. And, um, and then 
I also have stopped watching horror movies. I mean, I like gentle horror, like, um, I don't know. I don't know what gentle horror is, but the point is, so then I'm like, is he going to murder her? Like, that's going to annoy me. And then like, what's with the switch? And like, everything meant something. And I'm like, I, no, no. So I'm happy that you both are going to explain what happened. And so I did, I couldn't do it. At, once she's in the car and she's like the, the swing and he's like vague. I'm like, why the fuck are you vague about a swing? And why is it weird a swing is there? Like if the house fucking burned down or fell, why wouldn't the swing be there? And then she's like, it was a new swing. I'm like, I need to stop off. I'm going to turn it off. So I didn't get past the car ride and the janitor and the flashback. It's too much. So I'm going to ask questions. So, hey, did does he murder her? I need to feel for you to tell me that. I'm, like, scared to make any. I don't think he murders her. I mean, no. There's no, no. He, like, strangles her. Like that. Okay. No, there, there's, there is, this is not a violent film. I always print off these uh, Wikipedia cheat sheets because uh, I'll never remember people's names um, or characters' names. So I'm always uh, printing these off. And this one, it notes that uh, it is an American psychological horror film, which I, is fascinating to me. If, if anything, maybe an existential horror film, but there is no blood in this. Uh, there is no violence. It is like Hitchcock. Is he trying to be Hitchcock? Cause that's annoying. It, Don't be Hitchcock. No, no, it, it, well, a little bit, but it, it's, uh, I went through the same experience with this that I went through with Synecdoche, New York. And it's what Synecdoche. Make, I'm sorry. I'm going to do the obnoxious thing. It's Schenectady. Yeah. But the movie is Synecdoche. It's not Schenectady. No, it's okay. a play on words. The movie is called Synecdoche. Oh, I hate that guy. I'm done with that. I'm not watching a damn thing he makes because that's bullshit. So I went through. The, I went through the same thing with Synecdoche, New York. On first viewing, I was very disturbed. I was very uncomfortable. I was full of tension the whole time. When it ended, I was. I was wondering, not knowing how to feel. I was uh, digesting it. I had to sleep on it and then sleep on it again, and then. I went back to it and realized once again that uh, Charlie Kaufman is a capital A artist and that he's making something like a painting or a sculpture where once you know it, you come back to it, you see it from a different angle, and you experience it in a different way. And in both Synecdoche, New York, and I'm Thinking of Ending Things, I found myself loving this movie on the second watch because I knew what was going on. What was your emotional response, Raven? Um, as soon as I kind of got a sense of what the movie was, I was like, okay, I'm putting on my like Sarah Lawrence film student hat. This is a film. This must be analog <laughs> real time. Like I can't be looking at my phone. I can't be like doodling. I have to be watching. Things are happening. It was intellectually exhausting because I feel like I was holding so much in my head and like making all these theories and it does a good job of like shifting you around within your own theories where you're doubting yourself and you're doubting your own ability to like pay attention and track things. But I think that's part of it. It's kind of like that feeling when you're in a dream and you don't know how you got there, but you know that you're trying to do something, but you don't remember what it's kind of like that the whole time. I mean, I really appreciated the dreamlike quality of it. I'm like a real believer in dreams. I think that <clears> they like serve a purpose. Mm-hmm. And I think they're just as real as real life. And I like that the movie kind of folded that in 
that mm. idea of like the ethereal and the experience of humanness isn't just linear. Mm. But you know what annoyed me? Huh. The the it seemed like he was reading her mind and interrupting her inner thoughts. And I wanted mm-hmm. to go, can you fucking cut that shit out? Like let her finish a thought. And it's like, but if he's reading her, that's why I thought he was gonna kill her. Because she's like, I don't want this dude anymore. Why am I driving here in a snowstorm? I need to go back. And he like kept interrupting her like no, you're not going to leave me. And I'm like, oh, why is this happening? Like, it was annoying. It annoyed me. The whole reading. Can he read her mind? Is that part of the psychological thriller? Well, um, I will move this up to a whole new level of spoilers, if you'll allow me to explain what the fuck is happening here. Yeah. Yeah. Please. What I think is happening here anyway. I haven't read anything about this. There could be something really obvious going on that I'm missing. But this is my interpretation. And it, it is informed somewhat by having watched Synecdoche, New York, so many times. I'm Thinking of Ending Things is about the end-of-life issues faced by a janitor who is probably named Jake. Jake is from a rural town in some place like Oklahoma or Iowa, Uh, not a particularly smart child, not a talented child. He lacks acumen in anything that he does in life, and he goes on to live a very lonely life. It's unclear. He, he he probably had some sex at some point. He might have had a girlfriend, but most of his life he has been alone. As his mind starts to disintegrate, as his memories start to fail him even more, as either Alzheimer's or dementia starts to take over, and the monotony of life and a dark, cold winter creep in, he is thinking of suicide. And in that process, he is looking back on a life, uh, on the life he led and what mattered. He's trying to remember what was, but he's also making up fantasies for himself, uh, some delusions of grandeur. I don't think in necessarily like an evil narcissistic way, but just in that that's all he has. He is a great connoisseur. He devours art of many kinds, and the movie takes uh, a lot of chances to marinate in different art forms. Early on, we have a poetry reading that's very effective by the character, or young woman. Young woman, played by Jesse Buckley. Is that the main young woman, the girlfriend? Yes. Uh, Jesse Buckley plays the main young woman who, um, even if folks never see this, I would encourage them to check her out in season four of Fargo. I think that character, the young woman, is this janitor's soul, or at least half of this janitor's soul. It got me to thinking of uh, Jungian archetypes. He had anima and animus. Animus is was his idea that the feminine soul of every man is, uh, you know, the animus. And uh, fuck, I'm, I'll probably cut that out of the podcast. That's too... Bleh. But I've spent a lot of time jumping through a lot of hoops to reconcile a lot of gender dysphoria, which is something that's clearly going on here. He's expressing at least, this janitor's expressing at least half of his soul as this young woman who is the potential girlfriend he used to have, but never actually did. He's imagining what it might have been like to... Wait, hold up, hold up, hold up. That car ride is him talking to himself? 
and yeah. she's not really existing? Yeah, that's his internal dialogue. Sometimes the experience of trans women is dismissed or vulgarized or belittled uh, as autogynephilia. And part of that is trans women who are lesbians, if we're in our pre-transition lives, um, the the feminine self can only have an expression in... Um, well, there are various ways of expression, but one important one is um, unfairly outsourcing a lot of that identity onto actual or potential girlfriends or spouses, mm. whatever. And I think some of that's going on, and some of this gender dysphoria came out in uh, Synecdoche, New York, as the director of the play that's being made, sort of gender transitions in such a way that the audience hardly notices. It's really clever. That's when I realized what was happening. Like, when you start the movie, you think, oh, it's about this girl and her experience of her boyfriend. But then the more you watch, you realize it's not about the girl. The girl is kind of trapped in it, just like you are as the viewer. Like, <laughs> you're... Oh, I, honey, ta- I have tapped out. Are you kidding me right now? It's <laughs> like... You- the more I'm listening, the more I'm like, thank you, Jesus. I chose sleep. <laughs> All right, go on. I, I just needed to know. Go. And she's shown to be able to perform art that the janitor hasn't been able to approach. Um, he She recites a poem, which supposedly she wrote, but then it turns out she didn't. Uh, she shows his parents pictures of paintings she was supposed to have painted, um, but then eventually we see down in this janitor's childhood basement that the paintings uh, she was showing his parents are actually just from posters that are on the wall by an actual famous artist. And he tried to make art like that, but it wasn't that good, you know? And the parents' reception of the art is really interesting to me, how they're like, yeah, that's kind of nice. I like that you did colors, like this inability to even see the value that he clearly sees in it says a lot about like how they nurtured and raised him. Yeah. They're Um, very provincial and they're just not sophisticated people, uh, you know, on this janitor's level in that he is extremely well read. I mean, he's even clearly like been looking at gender theory, sexual orientation issues. uh, Yeah. When you said about, um, how he's like kind of wasn't a special kid or was a talentless kid. I was thinking a lot through the movie about like attachment style in like child development and how the parents throughout the movie are so invested in each other. And it's kind of like, that's his perception as he's kind of moving through doing things of service for them or trying to be notable to them, but they're still locked into husband and wife dynamics and he's like always on the outside so it kind of also provides an explanation to like why he can't form those kind of attachments why he doesn't have that confidence and it was like it's not his fault and I think he's aware that it's not his fault that his life didn't go that way but it's like something that's just it's on the his peripherals he can't quite see it and like encompass it and own that it's like a wound that's just he can't quite figure out he knows it's there but he's incapable of seeing it he still just keeps trying to do the 
service. Yeah, his parents don't understand or appreciate him. And even his mom, she doesn't say, oh, you should have won the Acumen Award. She says, oh, I'm so proud of you that you won the Diligence Award, which I personally, you know, I don't see any problem with that, but it's it's a hang-up for him. We, we, we learn through this girlfriend manifestation of his soul that he's well-versed in film criticism, in music criticism, and, and the movie takes time to appreciate these forms of art. Even um, the house he lives in, I'm pretty sure, is the, the actual home in that painting, what, Christina's World? They mentioned the painting of uh, the woman who fell in the field and is gazing at her, her home on the prairie, and there's a barn. Yeah. I think that's the house his parents were living in and the barn. Mm, so maybe that wasn't even the real house that he grew up in. He like superimposed his. The house with the swing might've been the one he grew up in. Ah, well, well the swing is never explained is what you're saying. That swing, it just comes and goes. Not exactly. <laughs> it is a little bit. The swing, I feel like is a symbol of that, like childhood he didn't get to have or like that. Cause it's like all shiny and new or whatever. Like no siblings. He's, he's, he's like really oh alone with these. Completely absent emotionally parents, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Which is like a pretty much a greater commentary, I think, on just like um, the American nuclear family lie that like that's all you need. Like he didn't have that village, didn't have the community. And I, I, I can't help but like I feel like my heart goes to like the little boy character. And that swing set to me is like, his untouched childhood, his unlived childhood, a childhood where he was burdened instead of playing. Like, that's like why it looks new or something. And did you notice when they were in the parents' house and Jake is there with his girlfriend and they see a picture of him as a child, except it's very clearly that he's a little girl and that it's her. There's evidence here that there's early childhood gender dysphoria, which is emerging again in this man's recollections to the point of it, it's confusing. And I think the third server at the ice cream restaurant may have actually been Jake as a young man, perhaps bullied or harmed by these popular pretty girls, or it could have been someone that he wanted to date or someone that he never got the guts up to date, or maybe someone he brought to his parents' house and was embarrassed and then looked back with regret that his parents destroyed a potential girlfriend relationship. I don't know, but I think there's gender dysphoria going on here. I can't help but project a lot of experiences as a trans lesbian onto this character, but given his generation and context, he's never able to embody uh, his potential either as a trans woman or as a bi-gender, uh, gender non-conforming person. Now I do want to watch it again, because I feel like for the first half of the movie, like when you, I forgot about the part where he looks at the pictures and it's her, because what I was thinking was like, oh, maybe he kidnapped her or maybe she's like being drugged and she has amnesia and he's done this to her like 10 times. But 
that would make a lot of sense. And it also, that kind of, that idea of like the repetition, the never, like the cycle you can't get out of, that you can't stop your anxiety from twirling around over and over. How he goes to that milkshake place so much because the dumpster's full of milkshake cups. Yeah, and the the uh, when he gets the milkshake, there's that line about the varnishing. Sorry, it smells because of the varnish. This comes just after all the talk about uh, the young woman having, you know, had too much to drink, and and there's the talk of the varnish, and there's talk of the sweetness, and as that young woman starts to lose consciousness. I think what we're really saying here is that this suicidal old man has put varnish a lacquer that is toxic. And if you were to put varnish lacquer into a milkshake, you could conceivably drink it. And it goes on to the point of her becoming more and more disoriented and eventually there's a scene in the pickup truck where there's the janitor and he's going through a very emotional process. And it could be that this entire movie is condensed into this moment as he is undergoing the effects of being poisoned by what he's given himself to the point that he ends up presumably stripping and walking naked accompanied by this uh, animated hallucination of a pig being eaten by maggots. Listen to all you missed, Aisha. I, I get it now. Okay, I'm glad that you're saying is making me want to watch this film, so I'm happy to just get the recap from the two of you. Thank you. Well, his big final performance, though, is then the successful attempt at suicide, then, is what you're saying. Yeah, well, he... That's when he's him in the audience and she's all old it's like she's she slash he has accepted this is the final yeah the the pig says you know some of us just have to accept being a pig being eaten by maggots it's it's our job before then we had the talk the whole dissection of uh baby it's cold outside and the frustration i see in that conversation is (sighs) this old man sort of hating himself for the fact that this whole gendered feminist criticism wave is coming over him in his last moments. Of all things, why is the thinking of baby it's cold outside in his last moments of life? But he's paid attention to music criticism, feminist criticism. We've had moments to appreciate painting, poetry, and then animation. We get a ballet that's like a final hallucination of all that might have been. And I I would hope that if if people could see this ballet, I maybe there'll be a video of it on YouTube or something, because I think a lot more movies need a ballet scene. Because <laughs> I just love that. Just thrown in incongruently. But it, but I mean you got an animated pig with maggots. So yeah. I again I just say a prayer. Oh, and there's a movie too. Like, the last movie he sees is this like kind of dumb romantic comedy. And uh, I would have enjoyed the dumb romantic comedy more. <laughs> I'm just—it's just not my genre. That's all. Thank you for letting me just wa- witness the two of you love this because it, it's not my genre. That's all. I think You're that's not all. Alone in that. uh, I I was saying before I watched it with my boyfriend, and like about 20 minutes in, he just got mad. He was just like, "I'm just frustrated, and I don't understand what's happening, and now I'm mad, but I'm invested, so I'm going to keep watching." But I'm irritated. 
Oh, and it ends with a stage play because he loves musicals. And it ends with him giving the um, monologue from A Beautiful Mind as he accepts a Nobel Prize in physics because... My skin is oozing off of my skin. And then he, right he sings like a variation. I believe it's a variation of a song from Oklahoma. And it's... Which is a... That was in the car. I remember that because then I was, he's like, Oklahoma, yeah. obviously. Er. Wing house fell. Janitor, he sees all of the high school performances every Mm -hmm. year of all the musicals. Yeah, and earlier in the day, the the kids are uh, performing Oklahoma. There's a dress rehearsal, clearly, and you know it's 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 just tragic. I was watching as as he spoke to a full auditorium of people in formal wear, and he's giving his. Nobel Prize acceptance speech. I'm just thinking a human being can can live their whole life and never once have an experience of speaking to a room full of attentive adults who care what they have to say and are celebrating their existence in life. And oh, even more so, like just feeling proud of yourself and having the people you love be proud of you. Like he never yeah. gets that. He never gets that feeling of. Even just his parents being like, you did a great job and we're proud of you. It's always, he has to invent it if he's going to even imagine what it would be like. And that's what he does up until his final mm-hmm. moment. I was like, oh, that was a lot of buildup and they didn't really have an ending. But like now I understand that that, I didn't even get that he was doing suicide. I thought that was just like the, maybe it was like a signifier of like his mental break and him like coming full circle with being like, I thought it was just a way of showing the audience, like, this guy is that guy. And that was the reveal. I totally missed the varnish, milkshake, suicide, hallucinating. I just was like, they're just being liberal now with their choices, and they're just being silly. What a weird way to end such a weird thing. There's one point at which the girlfriend says to Jake, looking back on his life, they were leaving the parents' house and talking about them, and she says, you chose well. I don't know. It it keeps feeling like a soul thing. It keeps feeling like she is the soul and she is saying to Jake, you know, in a younger, more robust, better looking iteration of Jake as as the young man, um, I'm thinking of ending things. Like, the soul is ready to leave the body. Mm, wow. And and the the ballet... If you may remember, uh, there's a, a after the marriage, there's a whole fight, and the janitor kills the young man, and that that seemed to me like age and experience and uh, futility and reality overcoming mm. potential. Mm. Uh. Ooh, I see that. That's crazy. And then, like, also the fact that he, like, is so resistant to leave his parents' house. I feel like that says a lot about, like, the strife of mm-hmm. kind of letting your adult self take over and being, like, your childhood self is irrelevant or your adolescent self is irrelevant because the, po- the potential and the possibility already been spent up and used up. There's nothing left here for you. Mm-hmm. Well, I am going to watch it again. Um, one final thought. It, I Love your synopsis, Sarah. I think another big theme of it, though, is like human dignity. And I think that like where that comes from, how it breathes, how it manifests, what happens if you don't have a sense of dignity in yourself or. And what's interesting is that pig character to me was the most dignified character 
throughout the entire film. I mean, we see like these parents like withhold it from each other and their son and then they age and then they're without it as they're um, being ailed, you know, and getting sick and elderly. Mm -hmm. And I think there's just like this play and thread of the loss of and the need for dignity throughout almost every scene. Yeah. Absolutely. And he's a very incredibly sympathetic character. I I loved seeing this kind of character given this sort of treatment. Cause if I found myself like standing behind this guy in line at Dick's, I would assume all the wrong things about his interiority. I think there's a movie that'll be understood for better or worse by people with very rich interior lives, <laughs> you know, uh, as he clearly had, and he's kind of defies expectations. So yeah, uh, the movie is, I'm thinking of ending things. It is a meditation on isolation, loneliness, mortality, suicide, the importance of the arts, the difficulty of uh, finding meaning through art when one has no talent, uh, the difficulty of not having supportive parents. It's about a great many things, and it's by Charlie Kaufman. And if people don't see it, I have some recommendations of the uh, uh, work by the other excellent actors in this. Jesse Plemons plays Jake. I recommend seeing him in the Black Mirror episode titled USS Callister. Uh, again, Jessie Buckley is the young woman. Um, she can be seen in season four of Fargo. Uh, in season three of Fargo, you can see David Hewless, who plays a crime boss on Fargo. Uh, but in I'm Thinking of Ending Things, he plays the dad. And the mom is played by Tony Collette, who is, is amazing. It's one of the best things about the miniseries Unbelievable on Netflix, which is something else we should probably talk about on the show eventually. The dude who plays Jake reminded me of um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. I just kept thinking, I'm like, oh my God, I keep thinking of, am I? Oh, you're totally right. Seymour and this Hoffman. this movie was so similar to, in thematically to Synecdoche, New York, that I, it was, See, that, it, was Philip, Philip Seymour, Seymour Hoffman starred in it. So I sort of felt like, you know, Charlie Kaufman, it was almost like going out and getting a a, a second wife who, you know, looks like you're, it's a younger version, younger, of, the younger version of, of the dead first wife or something. Sorry, that's really dark, but I think Charlie Kaufman would appreciate it. This has been By the Sound, your community-invested podcast. By the Sound is an Ahoy Hoy Media production. Ahoy Hoy!